I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on The Recess Course, we're going to be talking with Dr. Eve Purdy about a fascinating concept, relational coordination, and how it relates to resuscitation. Eve is an emergency physician who works currently in Australia at the Gold Coast University Hospital. She's an assistant professor at Bond University. She is Canadian. She did her original emergency medicine training out here in Canada at Queen's University. She has a master's of science in applied anthropology from the University of North Texas, and she is the research lead for simulation at Bond University. Eve has such a long list of accolades. First, congratulations for all that, and, and second, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm absolutely, absolutely thrilled to be on the podcast, and I'm from just south of Lunenburg, so nice to be talking to Nova Scotian. A fellow East Coaster. Exactly. What's, what do you miss most about Canada now being in Australia for a few years? Oh, it's a, it's a good question. It's funny. Australia and Canada are more, probably more similar than different, but there's some subtleties about the people that I miss. I think Canadians are a little bit, uh, probably a little bit more direct in their communication and perhaps a little bit kinder, which is, which is funny. That's probably the, the biggest thing. Can't say that I miss the minus 20. I was just back in Calgary. Yeah. It was a bit cold. Got to be a little bit warmer there. So Aussies beat around the bush then, no pun intended. Oh, no, really. So we actually, this comes up frequently when we speak with our recess teams, the amount of mitigating language that Australians use that is not clear is particularly hard if you're not from the cultural context. So I remember on my first day working in the emergency department, we went up to our recess bay and the person who was handing over to me said, oh, this person's pretty average. And I looked at it and I was like, this person is the sickest person on the Gold Coast. Like they basically need to be on ECMO suit. It turns out that average means like they're about to die. So yeah, it, it is a challenge in recess scenarios here, the degree of mitigating language and, and kind of casualness that makes living here nice, but makes practicing medicine a bit hard sometimes. I bet. Well, look, I mean, that kind of leads us right into exactly what we're going to be talking about here today is sort of those social interactions and the relationships that are built within resuscitation teams to care for for what are the sickest patients. You're an anthropologist, social scientist, and I guess what I'm wondering just to start off and frame, you know, all of this for us and kind of set us in the right direction. What specifically does the social sciences, what does anthropology, where does it fit into, into resuscitation? Look, James, it fits into every single resuscitation that we run. So obviously we bring all types of scientific and medical knowledge to the table, but at the end of the day, we are just people doing a job together and people behave in predictable ways and they respond predictably to constraints and to each other. So the social sciences in anthropology in particular, I think offers us the opportunity to really get the most out of our teams. So if we can apply some of the frameworks some of the evidence in the way that we know people work together and respond to each other, we're going to get the most out of our teams. And heck, we need all the help we can get looking after these sickest patients. So I think we risk really underperforming as a group if we don't pay, pay attention to the social sciences and our organizational culture, really leverage knowledge from those areas to make our teams as good as they possibly can be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anyone that's been doing this for any length of time, we'll have an appreciation for just how important those relationships are. I think people have a really good, or at least have some concept of the importance of it and maybe the lack of, of sort of understanding is on how they can improve them. And hopefully we can dive into some of that here today in terms of how we 
actually get better at doing this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And um, the good news is it's not wanna... magic. Like we there are ways we can learn how to do this. So it's, you know, it's it's not rocket science. It's not this ephemeral, confusing thing. Like we just need to learn it and apply it and do it. Yeah. 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 Well said. All right. So it's 2 a.m. You're working in the ED that you work in currently. A patch comes over the radio and EMS is transporting a 35-year-old guy who's been involved in a motorcycle MBC. Obvious injuries to his head, his chest, his abdomen. He has a painful and unstable pelvis and an open femur fracture. So a sick guy. He's got a GCS of 8, heart rate is 130, blood pressure is 80 on 50, SATs are 90% on a non-rebreather. EMS has bound his pelvis, they've established IV access, put him in a C-collar. And he's about 20 minutes from, from your location. You're working at a tertiary care center that does have a trauma team who have been activated or responding to, to the emergency department. So now I want you to fast forward. It's five minutes later. You've found yourself standing in the middle of that trauma room. You're surrounded by some emergency department nurses and residents from general surgery, anesthesia, orthopedics. Imagine other members of the team that may be on where you work. And you realize that you've never met these residents before. You don't know their names. You don't know their level of training. You have no idea what their skill set is and what their sort of mental model of resuscitation looks like as it relates to trauma. I don't think that's an uncommon scenario. At least it's not an uncommon scenario where I work. And I think it's probably not an uncommon scenario where a lot of people work. So I'm just interested, what, what are your initial thoughts on hearing that story, the scenario in that particular context? James, what is running through my mind is that this is the patient for whom our team needs to be operating at its absolute peak. So we need to get this right. There are high risk consequences to us getting the teamwork wrong in this situation, which brings us to how do we organize that? How do we coordinate this? Ultimately, looking after this patient is going to come down to matching the tasks that need to be done with the team that we have in front of us and hopefully doing that in a way that is in line with kind of a positive organizational culture. So in my mind, I'm having hearing that story, I'm thinking about what are the kind of key tasks and key priorities. And then I'm thinking about how am I rapidly going to gain some information about my team to sort out how I can best match the tasks that need to be done with the team that's in front of us. And having said that, this will look different at two o'clock in the morning than at 3 p.m. at night versus, you know, you could change one person's capabilities on the team and that will impact how you need to arrange your teamwork to get this job done. So I guess practically speaking, how do we think about gaining all that information about our team kind of in a rapid fashion? And I think that's where a really good and solid team briefing comes into play. I think historically we have thought about a team briefing as being the team leader sharing their mental model with the group and bestowing it upon everybody. I actually think of the team briefing actually probably as much about information gathering for ourselves as it is about telling people what to do. So in this particular mm -hmm. situation, most of my team briefing would probably focus on figuring out who the heck is here and what can they do. That makes assigning or figuring out the tasks that those people are going to do just natural. So what this will look like is some quick introductions. I want to go around the room, hear people's names, hear what level of training they're at. And in my mind, while we're going through that, I am thinking about what are the tasks that they're going to do. Now, it's particularly important in this situation to understand people's levels and capabilities because in this situation, I think it will quite dramatically change the shape of the team and how the teamwork is going to work. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Uh, ideally, for this critically unwell patient, 
with multiple complete competing priorities, we would be thinking about working off of kind of a semi-autonomous sub-team model, meaning that there is a group of people who can just look after the airway and I'm happy for them to do that. A group of people who can just put in chest strains and I'm happy for them to do that. And a group of people who are going to be responsible for the massive transfusion protocol and I'm just happy for them to do that. But that relies on a fairly high level of capability in each of those groups. So I'm in my mind as a leader kind of trying to diagnose my team and figure out, are there some groups that will just be able to do tasks that I can offload to them and which ones will I maybe need to have some more oversight? So step one, that's the kind of information gathering and the role assignment based on what your team looks like. And then in whatever time you have left, I think it's about creating a shared mental model for what our expectations are for the first kind of 10 minutes of managing this patient and what the key priorities will be. That shared cognition as a team is really what will allow people just to do their job. These are professionals coming in to do their job. And if we give them a clear, you know, clear idea of, of what page we're on and where we're going, they'll just make it happen. Yeah, that's awesome answer. You know, there's a lot of challenges, it sounds like, with a case like this, both with sort of diagnosing your team, actually managing the patient that's in front of you. I imagine that in addition to that, a large challenge is sort of navigating the relationships between team members as well, and probably less about what things need to be done and more about how the relationships amongst those team allow things to get done. Can, can you speak to that a bit? Oh, yeah. Our job is largely a relational one. We rely on trust, rapid kind of judgments of each other. And we rely on, and I mean, ideally, we'd create an environment where people feel like their contributions are valued and desired. So a really critical part of this team briefing actually is really setting the tone for mutual respect between these groups and setting the tone for how we want this room to feel while we're in it. Uh, and again, there's simple things that do that. So at the introductions at the beginning, you know, a quick thank you for everybody for being there in the middle of the night. And mm. importantly, at the end, probably some vulnerability around, you know, look, this is a complicated scenario. I am probably going to miss something and I'm going to rely on on people in this room to to help me out with that. Really sets the tone for respecting each other and is a core part of this going well. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember who I've heard this from, but I definitely use it almost on a daily basis in resuscitation is the tagline of, you know, what am I missing? And I usually try to wrap up a pre-brief to the team by opening up to suggestions to say, you know, what am I missing? Or sometimes what are we missing? Something that sort of unifies us as a group, mm. but also opens me up to some vulnerability to say, you know, I, I, I obviously can't and don't know everything. And there's probably people standing in this room right now that have the knowledge and experience to weigh in on on some of those things. And and I appreciate and open up the, the room to, to to give me that feedback. And at the end of the pre-brief, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah, I think that that's a, a really natural and, and great option. And I think actually empowering people to just kind of get on and do their job. So like if you've, if you've assigned a group to look after the airway and you can say, look, I'm going to trust that you guys are going to get ready for this. You know what you're doing. Let me know if there's anything else that I can do to support you in those efforts is, is probably pretty critical. I think another thing that we can do to set our teams up for success, again, setting the tone for how our team is going to work together is related specifically to backup behavior. In this situation, when this patient comes in, we've set these roles, but there's no doubt that in, in certain moments, 
you know, the person who's trying to get another cannula might be feeling they might be quite junior. And we want to set a tone and a norm that helping each other out is what we do. And a simple line, something like, look, different times in this case, different people are going to have different jobs. I'm trusting that you guys are going to identify how you can help others on this team can be a can be a bit of a helpful tone to set as well. That's awesome. And I guess I'll just highlight, this isn't actually about being nice. It's a bit about being nice. It's a lot about getting the best Mm -hmm. outcome for our patient. So we know that that our team will work better if we have an established tone of mutual respect and helping each other out and making contributions. Let's say that you've come to the point in the patient's care when a decision has to be made and you you could make any sort of sort of fork in the road scenario, but you know, let's let's say that you found the patient has a positive fast and they have some ongoing instability and some members of the team feel like the patient should go to the operating room and some members of the team feel like the patient should say go to the CT scanner, a classic dilemma scenario as it relates to trauma. I'm interested and, you know, you speak to this in, in a lot of your publications and, and, in your, and in your thesis around the sort of micro goals and shared mental models amongst teams. I'm interested in like how that scenario relates to the micro goals of the team and then how a shared mental model impacts that. How do you actually create a shared mental model amongst the team? Yeah, look at this. I mean, disagreement itself is not inherently a bad thing as long as that disagreement is happening in a way that is productive. So, you know, ultimately, I think both of those people who have a different idea of what should happen are probably, I mean, I would hope are have the kind of interests of the patient at heart. I think these really sharp ends of the resuscitation are a bit challenging. What allows that to go right has nothing to do with this moment or this case. It has to do with our relationships and our shared mental models as a trauma institution. So this goes back to how we train together, how we review cases together. It comes back to me as an emergency physician, having some shared understanding of what is going to actually happen in theater and why going to the CT scanner might be of benefit. It comes down to the trauma surgeon knowing what actually is the value out of the emergency department and when it when you know what do we have to offer and what can't we offer so really establishing shared goals shared knowledge of each other's roles and mutual respect outside of this sharp moment is what will allow this conversation to go a lot better so in our institution we have a lot of disagreements with the trauma surgeons about what should happen but those those disagreements are rooted in an understanding of kind of general general principles around shared goals and some protocols help us with that. A really, I would say, quite sophisticated understanding of other people's roles in the care of the trauma patient and then a high, high, high degree of mutual respect. Um, I think when we see this go poorly in resuscitations, it's oftentimes because that either understanding of roles and what other people are actually bringing to the table is missing or this mutual respect is missing. So I think the goal for any trauma institution should be what can we do to facilitate relationships and building of trust and understanding of each other's roles outside of these really sharp moments so that when we get to them, we're all we're all actually there with a problem solving based attitude and can engage in these disagreements in a productive way. Yeah. You talk a lot about culture. Is that part of what culture is? Like is the bigger picture of mutual respect amongst one another and the shared mental model broadly as it relates to resuscitation 
between specialties is that is that culture is that part of culture yeah yeah so culture in general is like the way we do things around here and that relates to actual kind of processes but it also relates to the way that we treat each other and the way that we understand each other so there are things that we can do in the moment in the resuscitation room to shape the culture of these six or seven people kind of coming together in the moment but all of that will be flavored by what their experience is of trauma care in the institution more broadly. And so the work that you're doing around education and the work that any work that we can do that brings people together outside away from this like hot, fiery end of looking after patients and gives them time and space to reflect together uh, and to gain an appreciation of each other's skills really, I think, goes a long way in the in the heat of the moment when we're actually in that resuscitation room. And it's a real challenge in institutions where the trauma teams are made up of fairly transient members. So residents that are rotating through ortho and gen surge and ICU that may not be kind of stable members of the trauma team that haven't been conditioned around what these expectations are. So I can give you an example with our trauma service. How do we actually shape this? How do we impact it? How do we actually get the type of culture that we want? And one of the things yeah, that please. we've started doing over the past three years is there's a group of new trauma fellows that starts every February. And they're often general surgery trainees who are towards the end of their training, but come from lots of different institutions. And as the emergency department, we have decided that we are going to run, we run an explicit trauma orientation for the trauma fellows uh, with the explicit purposes of building trust, setting some expectations for the way that they're going to engage when they come into the trauma bay and being really clear and explicit about that. And all three of the trauma fellows this year told us in their seven years of working in hospitals around Australia, not once has an emergency department actually like told them what they expect and set some ground rules uh -huh. for how they're going to engage in the trauma room. And they're like, this is so helpful. We got to set those expectations really, really high, which is the That's which is awesome. the fun part. So I think we we need to get really deliberate about how we are sending our value signals um, and how we're support supporting those both in the moment with things like team briefings, recaps, after action reviews, but also in our larger kind of trauma world with how we are getting together to discuss cases who's involved in developing protocols, how we're training together. All of those things set the tone for what happens in the trauma. Yeah, that's so important. A positive culture and what you're trying to establish in the recess room doing things like you're talking about. Do you ever feel like you're fighting against the negative culture that seems to be impacting? Like take that trauma fellow, for example. You know, they have so many influential sort of cultural things coming at them either from you know their own department or other residents and then you're pushing back positive culture on one end and, and sometimes do you feel like you're getting someone coming from the other end with some negative culture and like how do you how do you combat that oh yeah you just be a bit relentless and consistent i don't know if you've seen ted lasso but that's basically the that's <laughs> that's basically the situation right in healthcare in particular there's this norm thinking that all this stuff is soft but it's not it's directly linked no. to outcomes and yeah. So just keeping at it. So a, a good example is not trauma related, but in our large emergency department where we have over 200 emergency physicians and 500 nurses, 
you come together on a shift and you might not know half of the people that you're working with. A very basic intervention is at the beginning of the shift doing a huddle so that everybody knows each other. Like that is like management 101 and it should just be an expectation. But it's taken us about two years to get to the point where this is happening regularly because people either don't have the skills to lead these conversations or they just kind of don't think it's important, but you just keep at it. And now it's at the point where people realize that their job is a lot easier the rest of the day if they actually know what other people can do and what their goals are and how they can how they can help support that. So there's a lot of modeling and role modeling and some champions that just, yeah, just keep at it. So far, really, we've been talking a lot about relational coordination without specifically naming it and talking about it. I'd love to, to hear your summary on what relational coordination is and some of those sort of dimensions, just so that we can kind of have a good framework and understanding of exactly what we're talking about here when we structure these kind of relationships and interactions with with people during resuscitation. Yeah, look, relational coordination, I think, is an excellent framework for almost anything in medicine. So this was a framework that was developed by a woman by the name of Jody Hoffer Gattel, who works in the States as a social scientist. And the thing that I like most about this is this concept came from the airline industry. And we hear all about the airline industry in medicine, right? Like crisis resource management and, you know, safety one and, you know, all of these things about how we can perform at our best. This came from the airline industry, but it had nothing to do with airplanes that were crashing. It had everything to do with sorting out how airlines get passengers and their bags to their destinations on time. That is much more like what we do in medicine. There is this complexity to getting passengers who are going any number of places to their destinations with their bags on time. And there's this web of people from ticket agents to gate agents to the passengers themselves to the baggage handlers to the pilots that make that happen. And coordinating that work is really hard. So relational coordination is very a very useful framework for understanding work that is complex highly interdependent and kind of time sensitive. That's emergency medicine. That's trauma care. So this framework is really useful for us. What they identify is there's three relational factors that allow this to go well, this type of complex work to go well. The first is shared goals. So that basically is what are our priorities and what are the things that we need to get done at a fairly high level. The second is shared knowledge but not actually knowledge about trauma. It's actually knowledge about what other people's roles are and how they impact our work. So shared knowledge about roles. And then the third one is mutual respect, which encompasses things like psychological safety, belonging, trust, factors that really kind of underpin the way that people feel about their work. So those are the relational domains. And then all of this has to be in the context of communication that's high quality. So communication that's accurate, timely, frequent, and problem-solving based. So if we see across contexts, both in any number of business literature, but especially now we're seeing in healthcare, that teams that have high levels of relational coordination, this is something that you can measure in teams, teams that have high levels of relational coordination have better outcomes across almost every single domain. We were one of the first groups to study this in trauma, and we actually looked at what is the relational coordination in our trauma service. 
what are the friction points? What are the, the things that we could be doing better? And we use this study of relational coordination to support a quality improvement process for, for our group. And we've done that now with a number of groups around the hospital, all of whom find this kind of focus on shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect to be something that's quite actionable and something that we can impact to have better outcomes for our patients. That's awesome. What, what are some examples of sort of things that you did in response to having calculated this relational coordination measure? What were the sort of interventions that you did? Yeah. So what we did first off is got this kind of graph back of relational coordination between groups. So the emergency team got to see how the surgical team felt about them, got to see how anesthetics felt about them, got to see how the trauma service felt about them. And all of the groups got this information. And step one was actually just taking this back to the groups and going, hey, what do you think of this? What does this mean for us? So actually just sharing some of this information back. Uh, and then from there, all of these groups actually were able to identify things that they wanted to do to support this. Some were process, some were structural, structural, and some were relational. So an example of the structural change is that this provided some extra evidence that things go significantly better from our for our trauma patient when the trauma service is present. Before this study, our trauma service was 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. It's now 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. seven days a week. This was a piece of the evidence that kind of facilitated mm -hmm. that, but an important piece, I think. Another kind of structural thing that we did is we got some cameras that go directly from our recess room to our CT scanner because there was this whole like back and forth of like, oh, we're coming to CT, we're not coming to CT, we are coming to CT, and the CT radiographers found that really frustrating to the point where it actually impacted relationships with the team. So now they can just pull up a screen wow. and like actually see when we're coming to the CT scanner, which is quite helpful. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Some process related changes are the kind of pre-briefings that we talked about. So we got a lot more deliberate about making our pre-briefings related to shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. And we trained the emergency teams around making their pre pre-briefings well aligned to support relational coordination. And then there's been some offshoots of this, specifically working on relationships. So we've focused on the handover process in theater. One of the things that we found was the engagement with kind of everything we were doing in trauma education and training was quite low from our surgeons initially because it didn't it didn't actually impact them as much. But one thing that really impacts them is how these patients are handed over in theater when they get up there. So we use that as an excuse to improve our handover process in theater, uh, which hand improved the process, but it actually improved our relationships a lot more. So we spent some time with the surgeons talking about, you know, what they need and how we can help with that. And so we start to see there's a whole suite of kind of structural process and relational interventions, some of which overlap, but map out really nicely with with kind of the data that we had to support that. You know, when you when you study this, when you're trying to look at the relationships, the relational coordination, RC index between different services that are involved, do you then go back after these interventions and then sort of reassess what the relationships are like now? Oh, yeah, I'm not worried about that. That's the whole point. So the the going through this process together is actually an intervention yeah. in and of itself. So the kind of technical term yeah. is action research, meaning that you're working with communities on something that's important to them. And oftentimes just doing that is is an intervention. So you can imagine that getting, you know, 300 trauma care providers to think about our relationships and how we can improve them to look after trauma patients like that alone was of benefit. Now, with our trauma service and our trauma group, we've not actually gone back and, and looked at 
relationships again, or actually any clinical outcomes. But with some other groups that we work with, we have. So with our, we've been working with the obstetrics team here on postpartum hemorrhage and went through a very similar process of measuring relational coordination within this group, having them reflect on it. And they had kind of six interventions that they worked in. And then about 18 months later, looked at the same clinical outcome, which is the the percentage of large volume PPHs. You manage a small PPH well, it doesn't progress to a large PPH. We actually halved that rate in the hospital. So we've focused more on clinical outcomes as that follow-up kind of number than going back and re-measuring the relationships. I don't know that would be necessarily helpful. And we're not even trying to prove that relationships are better. You know, if teams are engaging in this and are engaging in their own quality improvement, that's good enough for me. Good point. If you were to design a simulation program or an in-situ simulation program to improve relational coordination, like what, what does that look like for an institution that might not yet have something like that? If you were to say to them, here's how I would structure this general terms, you know, what would it look like? Yeah, I really liked that you used the term program there. So I, my first suggestion would be that simulation is not an event. This has to be a long-term program that is consistent and brings people together. So for our group, I would say that the trauma simulations that we have once a month have become a bit of a cornerstone ritual. This is a time when people come together to talk about trauma care. And the way that it has become this type of kind of important ritual for our group is just through consistency. So every month, bringing people together. And the pearl that brings people together is, you know, some clinical case. And I think I would start very simple. So if if you're not doing in-situ simulation yet, if you're not doing trauma simulation, choose simple cases that your teams will do well. There's a lot to unpack with what goes well and why that goes well and would focus on cases that are the standard ones that we see, you know, cat A head injuries, patients that have competing demands between chest injuries and needing to be intubated. You know, some fairly classic cases that bring people together. I guess I would also just think whether or not you need to be doing simulations. So there's other ways to bring people together. Um, We do some visually enhanced mental simulations with our teams. Even just some robust case discussions could be useful. I think the most important thing is bringing people together from different groups. And exactly what that looks like probably matters a little bit less than the fact that you've got them together in a room to talk about performance. Yeah, that's a good point. It needs to be the other services that have to come together into that sort of foreign environment where they don't normally work together. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, it could be something as simple as we're just going to, because time always becomes the kind of issue or hotly debated, contested issue. But it could be that you're going to do something as simple as the preparation phase of this patient. Like the team just gets a notification that something is coming in and you do the pre-briefing and arrival of the patient, and that's it. Like, this doesn't have to be a whole trauma case. It could be, look, this for this entire year, we're just going to work on getting our pre-briefing right to properly assign our kind of teams and or the tasks that need to be done to the team that we've got in front of us. You know, something as simple as that could go a long way. Oh, that's brilliant. Look, I'd love to hear how you might pre-brief this particular case that I, that I started off with. I think it would be super helpful just to hear, you know, how do you structure this? What does it sound like? And what are those concepts of, of relational coordination and relational dimensions? How does that sound in an actual pre-brief? Yeah, I can give it a bit of a go. So I'd start by 
there may be a pre-brief to the pre-brief. So you know that awkward moment when people are kind of gathering around? I would probably be doing a bit of yeah. sussing out of who people are even before we get into the room. So I might go up to the anesthetics reg and say, hey, we've not met before. Just get a gauge of where your training is. So that it, I would take advantage of that moment before you get the team together. And then I'd say, hey, look, guys, thanks for being here tonight. We're going to be looking after a critically ill patient together. And we're just going to spend five minutes here sorting out how we can do that best. In order to know how to do that, it will be helpful for us to do some quick introductions. If you can let me know what your name is, write that on your apron as well. And if you can let us know where you're coming from and what your level is, that would be great. So do a quick round the room, sort out who everybody is. And then I would say, look, what we know is that this is a 35-year-old critically injured patient with competing demands. He's got a head injury, chest injuries, a belly injury, and a femur fracture. Obviously, there's a lot of tasks that we need to do to look after this guy. Uh, and in order to do that, I'm actually going to split us up into some sub-teams here. So the anesthetics registrar, who happens to be a PGY-5, is going to work with our RT and I'm actually going to have you guys do an initial airway assessment and have everything ready that you need to intubate this patient. I'm going to have one of the emergency nurses, as well as the ICU resident who's here, be in charge of getting vascular access for this patient. He's going to need an MTP, given that he's hypotensive. For the additional gr group in the room here, our emergency medicine resident, I'm going to get you to do our initial primary survey and FAST scan. In advance of this patient arriving, if you can set up for chest strains and be prepared to do that and would have a bit in my mind of whether that is possible. I'll have an emergency nurse as well as the general surgery resident helping with that as well. So that's what we know. Plan A is that we're going to initially resuscitate this patient with blood, plan to intubate them. And if we are able to get them hemodynamically stable, get to the CT scanner within about 20 minutes of this patient's arrival. What might happen is that they are persistently hemodynamically unstable. If that's the case, we're going to get a quick chest and pelvic x-ray, but it is possible that we may need to go for a trauma laparotomy. And then I'd open it up to the group and say, hey team, what have I missed? What else should we be doing here? I'd probably get all sorts of great suggestions. And then I'd close it out by saying, Look, just as a reminder, this is a critically ill patient. I'm probably going to miss some things. I'm going to need all the help I can get. If you notice that we should be doing something, please feel free to add that in as a contribution. Given that the trajectory for this patient is probably theater, I'm going to ask everybody who's in this room to call their consultant in and we'll get all the extra help that we can get. Thanks. Oh, that's perfect. In this situation, there's about a million things that are running through my head as the team leader and sorting out what does this whole group need to know? So it's probably likely that after this team briefing happens, those teams are going to go start getting their things ready. And I'll just go check in with them with some additional thoughts and suggestions. So for the circulation team, I'll probably go to them and say, look, let's make sure the patients had some tranexamic acid and I'm happy for you guys to do, maybe we'll do a rotum guided transfusion and just have a little kind of deeper chat with them. But the whole team doesn't need to know that. Like the airway doctor doesn't need to know this little kind of nuance of the circulation. So it is a challenge sorting out what does the whole team need to know versus what do these kind of little sub-teams need to know. Yeah, you really are orchestrating sub-teams. I imagine that even those little interactions that you have with the sub-teams establish a great deal of mutual respect as well because you're clearly targeting them. They feel appreciated. They understand their importance in, in 
in accomplishing the priorities that you've set out just by having that one-on-one conversation as well. Yeah, and it totally lets you start to set up some kind of additional higher level team behaviors like monitoring. So it could be that, you know, as a team leader, you've got a million things going through your mind. But I might say to the circulation team, look, you really need to let me know when we're four units in, because in my mind, that's my threshold of kind of a non-responder or a responder. And so I might I all of a sudden offload that and I've trusted that they're going to be in charge of monitoring the blood pressure and how much blood has gone in and they'll report back as, you know, as needed. And to the, you know, emergency and procedures team, I might go over and say, look, what I need you to do in the first two minutes of this patient arriving is decide whether they need a chest drain or not. And I'm happy to help in that decision. But our goal is really to sort out do they need this intervention in the emergency department right now? And that's going to be what our priority is. So you can kind of target things a little bit more clearly with the with the sub-team. And I'm not just sitting back as the team leader, leader hanging out. I actually am observing how the airway anesthetic registrar and RT, I am observing how they're getting their equipment ready, the discussions that they're having, and making some micro judgments about how involved or not I need to be in that in that setting. Oftentimes, you'll look to the head of the bed and you can see they're going through the checklist, they're you know, doing everything and you go, geez, wow, they're on it. Or are they just like standing there looking at each other and obviously need some more mm. direction? So it requires, it does require a fair bit of active reflection in the moment about how involved or step back you're going to be. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Amazing. Well, listen, the, we've come to the end of the podcast. Is there anything else that uh, you want to impart on the listeners or any Final words of wisdom that you want people to know about relational coordination or social interactions within resuscitation? Oh, I guess in from some of our research, it has just been so apparent how leadership behavior impacts people's ability to feel like they can and should contribute. And so the way that we behave in the resuscitation room and the tone that we set is extremely, extremely important. And there's small things that we can do to make that a much better experience for our team so they can perform at their best. And uh, I think we've got a responsibility to do that. So the small moments matter, the small things we do matter, and we have a huge impact on the way that our teams perform. Amazing. Eve, thanks so much for being on the show. And hopefully we'll have you back again sometime soon to talk about this stuff more. Sounds great. Thanks, James.